In this episode, you're either being kidnapped by a half-man, half-rat living in the sewers, or by a car with no driver. Everything's coming up, Millhouse! I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are? I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time that I collected comics. I have two comics for you once again this time around, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 131, and The Transformers, number 33, both of which are great issues that I've been looking forward to covering, and both of which came out on July 14th, 1987. The first one I'm going to cover is the Spider-Man comic, which is part three of the Craven's Last Hunt storyline, and had a cover price of 75 cents. The cover, which is by Mike Zeck, shows vermin crawling in the sewers while Craven, in a Spider-Man costume, lurks around a corner. Out of the six covers in the storyline, it's definitely the weakest. I mean, it's still a good cover, but it's just that the other five covers in the storyline are just that much better. Our title is called Descent, and our creative team is as follows. J.M.J. Mateus writer, Mike Zeck pencils, Bob McLeod inks, Janet Jackson did the colors on the original issue, and Ian Tetralt and Mike Zeck recolored the story for My Trade Paperback Edition. Rick Parker was the letterer, Jim Salakrip editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. It is the same night as Part 2. Craven, in his Spider-Man costume, leaps around New York doing his I am the spider inner monologue while leaving a trail of badly injured and at least one dead criminal in his wake. The police have to clean up the mess and seem to be baffled as to why Spider-Man is acting this way. Vermin drags a woman into an alley and then walks across the street coming face to face with a cop car. When the cop that will yells, That's a man! Vermin hisses, what was I before, and jumps through the windshield, attacking him. The cop is thrown aside and consumed by the rats from the sewers, but his partner, a woman named Marcia, shoots Vermin. Vermin attacks her, but he thinks about how she reminds him of his mother and then licks her cheek before running away, leaving Marcia in shock. Mary Jane, having recovered from her encounter with Craven as Spider-Man, heads over to Joe Robertson's apartment to talk to him, but she can't bring herself to say anything and leaves as abruptly as she showed up, thinking that she can't tell him about Peter being missing and about Peter being Spider-Man. After she leaves, Joe stares at that day's Daily Bugle, which has the headline of Spider-Man Goes Berserk. Back in his home, Craven tortures a rat in a cage with a huge knife and then dons his Spider-Man costume 
to head into the sewers to fight Vermin. Vermin is scared at first, but after Craven talks about how the last time Spider-Man defeated Vermin, he had help from Captain America, and Cap's not there, Vermin then attacks him. Craven defeats him and then carries him up from the sewers to his home. At Spider-Man's grave, where spiders have been congregating on the dirt, a black glove hand reaches out and we hear, Mary Jane? This puts us halfway through the storyline, and what this part does is finish setting up what's going to be a prolonged confrontation between Spider-Man, Craven, and Vermin. The last panel of this issue tells us that Spider-Man is coming back in the next part, and I think that was a very smart decision on the part of J.M. Damateus. One problem that prolonged stories sometimes have is that a particularly important moment, such as the return of an important character, comes too late in the story, so the ending seems a little more rushed than you'd like it to be. By bringing Spider-Man back into the story at the beginning of the second half, DeMatteis will have time to let the confrontation build and will have time to let things develop. So what you have here is an issue that literally continues things along, making this the Amazing Spider-Man issue that preceded one long story since they've been pretty much taking place in the same night. And I have to be honest, I actually had to remind myself of that when I came across the scene where Mary Jane goes to Joe Robertson's place. Comic book time in real time can be a little wonky, and even after all these years, I sometimes have to remind myself that the stories I'm reading aren't happening in real time. I'm not completely sold on Vermin. He's definitely creepy. Licking the cop's cheek like that is almost as gross as Craven consuming all the spiders. And at least I don't feel that I have to know his entire backstory to understand why he hates Spider-Man. There's no need for a prolonged flashback or a deep understanding of continuity. Damateus handles that by having Craven talk to the man-rat and say Spider-Man wasn't alone last time, which goes along with something Vermin had said last issue about Spider-Spidey and a Captain Flag. For an issue that's mostly set up, it's a good one, and that last pilot panel of Spider-Man's hand coming out from his grave is enough of a payoff. Zack's art once again shines, although I'm starting to wonder what the coloring of the original issues was like, because while I like the recolored trade, the recoloring that has, has that painted aspect to it that I'm hot and cold on. Here it works. It contributes to the mood. It adds strength to Zack's characters, especially Kraven. Granted, I don't necessarily always need to see Craven crouching naked in a window saying, Tonight. But to Zek's credit, he makes the villain intimidating. He does action well, of course, and even the few emotional moments of either comedy or pathos are rendered well. And I'm really looking forward to when I cover part four in our next episode. But for right now, I'm going to take a break and I'll be right back with the Transformers number 33. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth 
every penny. Also available on July 14, 1987 and retailing at $1 was the Transformers number 33. The cover by Charles Vest shows knights from medieval England fighting against a random Transformer whose insignia looks like a Decepticons and the cover says, You won't believe it! Your eyes will bug out! An explosive saga from the House of Ideas! And the issue box has Grimlock in the window with the Union Jack behind him. This issue and the next issue is a reprint of a two-part story called Man of Iron, and the credits on the issue originally were as follows. Steve Parkhouse writer, John Ridgway artist, Richard Starkings letter, Nell Yamtov colorist, the editor on the book was Don Daly, and the editor-in-chief was Jim Shooter. Now, I'm reading this out of the Transformers Classics Volume 3 trade from IDW, which I purchased on Comixology, and it has been sort of recolored. It seems that it's actually had its original color restored, so it was recolored for the American publication, the original individual issues of the, of the series. Here's a note that is in the beginning of issue 33. The content included in issues number 33 and 34, October-November 1987, comprised a four-part tale originally presented in Marvel UK's highly regarded Transformers magazine. The epic, Man of Iron, Parts 1 and 2, U.S. Issues 33, and 3 to 4, U.S. Issue 34, was formally printed in Transformers Magazine at UK Issues 9 through 12, published fortnightly or bi-weekly from January 12th to March 8th, 1985, and exists as the first original Transformers narrative concocted, quote, across the pond. Furthermore, observant trans fans will note that the Union Jack British flag occupying the box in the upper left corner of the cover to the U.S. issue number 33, while in direct sales variant cover of the same issue, Shakespeare's face was included in the bottom corner box as an homage to the Brits. Finally, many aficionados will recognize that these issues featured John Ridgway and Mike Collins' fully painted and much celebrated comic pages, where the Townsend duo made use of colored dyes and acrylics to render our favorite sentient robots. For more on this, see James Robertson's Cornucopian Introductory Notes to IDW's Transformers Classics UK, page 11. We open at Stanchum Castle, which is in the south of England. It's summer, and it's hot. Tourists visit the site, and the security guard nods off, but then all of them are disturbed by three Decepticons disguised as fighter jets attacking the museum. Everyone is safe. The police show up and notice that one of the fighters was targeting something that was deep below the ground. They call the curator, Roy, and tell him to come down. Roy gets in the car, but first looks out for his son, Sammy, who is playing Indian in the woods with a bow and arrow set, and then comes face to face with the Autobot named Jazz. He runs home scared, and Jazz follows as a car does surveillance and leaves. That night, Roy reads Sammy a bedtime story, a medieval story about knights fighting a man of iron, and the man of iron fighting alongside forces from the castle. It, set, it ends with the man of iron walking off into the woods and abandoning the citizens. Roy shows Sammy a depiction of the man of iron and asks if he looks like the robot that he saw earlier that day. Sammy says, more or less, and his dad makes the point that the story he told about it is about a thousand years old. Chapter 2 opens with Sammy in bed and two robots, a fighter jet that I believe is Thundercracker, and an indie 
500 car that is Mirage are outside his room. Mirage says his name, but Sammy yells, Don't take me! and starts floating around the room. His parents go into the room. They find things flying everywhere, but Sammy is sound asleep. As he shuts the door, Roy spots Mirage walking away and wonders what is going on. The next morning, government security is all around the castle, and Roy finds out that something massive is buried below the surface. The security officer asks him to keep everything hush-hush, and Roy admits that Sammy might know something. Sammy is at home and is approached by Jazz, who talks to him and does that creepy child kidnapper thing of, well, we're not strangers now. Hi, Georgie. Aren't you going to say hello? Oh. Come on, Bucko. Don't you want a balloon? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, Georgie. Very wise indeed. I, Georgie, am Pennywise the Dancing Clown. You are Georgie. So now we know each other. Can you rest? I guess so. Go! Go? Without this? My ghost! Exactly! Go on, kiddo. Take it. Oh. You want it, don't you, Georgie? Oh, of course you do. And there's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And balloons, too. All colors. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float, Georgie. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float too! Sammy climbs into the car, sits behind the wheel, and is promptly abducted. To be continued. You know, I'm usually not a fan of comics being recolored from their original publication, but since the editor's note points out this is actually restoration of the original coloring, I'll not only let it go, but I'll say that it was a wise decision on the part of the editors at IDW. Nothing against the excellent work that Nell Yamtov has done on this title so far, but the painted coloring in this issue is absolutely gorgeous. Furthermore, this is some of the most detail I've seen on the robots in the Transformers comics, that I have seen in quite a while. It's amazing, and the artists do a wonderful job at rendering the English countryside, as well as the characters and the robots, especially the robots. Jazz and Mirage, as well as Thundercracker, look exactly like the toys that we're all, we were all seeing on the shelves a few years before, and you can really tell that they have done a great deal of painstaking work. The story itself is a great one. I remember that this and the issue, uh, the issue after it, 34 were the only two issues of Transformers that I read over and over and over and over and over again when I was still reading comics at this point. I like this idea that there is a medieval legend centered around an Autobot that showed up a thousand years ago and then more or less disappeared and how they use Sammy's imagination to their advantage. Plus, they get into some great detail with that backstory. 
And while we as readers know the, uh, the Autobots are the good guys, the way that Jazz and Mirage sneak around Sammy's house shows you why he feels legitimately scared by the both of them. I've got one more issue of Transformers after this, and thankfully it's the second issue of the storyline. It's definitely worth looking forward to. And I'd also like to point out something that the humans are the focus, not the robots. And the robots are scary, and they're... they're Whereas in the dark is their, to their motivation, even though we're familiar with the characters of the Autobots and the Decepticons, we're not entirely sure what everybody else's motivation is either. And I like how the writers did that. It was a nice, refreshing take on what we've been seeing since the beginning of the story. Where, you know, where if you go all the way back to the first few issues of the Transformers, it's definitely that. But uh, the robots themselves are so fully fleshed out characters that by this point that this is almost like i said a refreshing look a different look at it and while this is pretty short because both of these issues are really setups for bigger bigger issues down the line uh that will do it i'll be back in two weeks with web of spider-man number 32 which is part four of the craven's last hunt storyline and maybe i'll put it on you on my belt and ramble on about my youth until then you can go to popcultureaffidavit.com for show notes you can go to the facebook group to leave me a message leave a review in itunes if you want to or you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com i will see you again in two weeks and until then thanks for listening and take care <laughs>